Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now, as we know, sleep is one of the most talked about topics for new parents. None of them are getting enough, and everyone is worried about it. In Western cultures, parents are often made to feel that the only way to get sleep is to leave their baby to cry, to learn to sleep alone, something called crying it out. This can be modified slightly where parents leave their child for intervals of time, often called controlled crying or controlled comforting. Importantly, the age at which we recommend this to families has gotten younger and younger over the years. And even who we recommend it to has changed. Whereas it was once recommended for families with severe problems, it's now recommended as a preemptive move parents should take to avoid any future problems. But what does the research say about these changes? Do they support the use of this type of sleep training for kids so young and to prevent future problems? Joining me to discuss this is McCall Gordon, a researcher specializing in infant mental health who's reviewed the research in depth and is here to share these findings. Whether you're surprised or not, depending on where you stand, the findings are ones that should be more widely discussed because they have major implications for all families. I am so pleased to have with me today, McCall Gordon. She is an adjunct faculty at Antioch University in Seattle in the School of Applied Psychology, Counseling and Family Therapy. Her research specializes in infant mental health with an emphasis on infant sleep and parent-child interactions, as well as the cultural context of parenting and child rearing advice. Her current research examines the interaction of infant sleep interventions and family and maternal well-being. She has presented her research at national and international conferences on infancy and child development. Gordon has worked locally with Tolaris Research Institute and the Gottman's Bringing, Ho- Bringing Baby Home Project. Pardon me. Thank you so much for being here today. Your Gordon and Hill 2015 paper is something I have referenced several times in work I've done. So, oh, so great. I'm so excited. I'm so, so passionate about this topic. It is, yeah, this is a big one. So today we are talking about a paper you're working on, which is really kind of an overall critical lit review of crying it out and sleep training, where the extinction methods of sleep training. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these findings you've presented, which I've cited and newer ones presented as well. Mm-hmm. And so although that's going to be the focus, I, I always start and I always have to ask, how did you get interested in infant sleep and and specifically that interaction with family well-being and sleep training and and everything more generally oh well experience right i was um my my daughter this is you know in the early early mid 90s um when right before the internet thank goodness um the internet, there was like a phone book of the internet. That's how small the internet was. Um, so it was all mostly a lot of magazines were big back then, the parenting magazines and then books, of course. And I had a very alert, very sensitive, very intense baby. And I, I knew I couldn't do crying it out. I just systemically couldn't do it. Plus I knew she would cry for three solid hours and would never give up ever. So that was off the table as it was just a non-starter. And at the time we were doing attachment parenting, following Dr. Sears, doing all the stuff that he said would really work or would really make everything great. And what, not so much for us. I mean, it was, was still, I wasn't sleeping. Um, And at the same time, I was looking at these, parenting magazines. And on the one hand, you know, this was that early brain development, critical periods time. So on the one hand, there'll be articles that said, talked about how important responsiveness was. And literally on the next page, it would be, but you, but you have to do crying it out. And then I watched that age get younger and younger and younger. And I was like, well, there must be research on this. There, there must be, it must be I mean, it wasn't for me, but I was like, it must be fine. It must be fine. And the more I went along, I kept that question kept nagging me until I thought, okay, I've got to find out. I've got to find out what, because this doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, and, and so that's when I kind of started noodling around on the, on the web. But then I ultimately went to graduate school and that was the focus of my my graduate school um, 
life was answering that question. What do we know about the effectiveness and safety and advisability and necessity of using crying it out in, you know, essentially before six months, but what do we know about it just in general? I love that. And now did your daughter eventually sleep? How long did that take? (laughs) But then I had my son and he didn't sleep in a whole different way. Um, And actually I should just, as a side note, the co-sleeping was fine, but it just wasn't solving all the problems. And at that moment, Dr. Sears was writing the fussy baby book. And so we didn't know that, but we went and actually had an appointment with him when my daughter was five months old. And we're like, what the heck? (laughs) What is going on here? And he was like, you know, I'm writing this book. Would you like to contribute to it? So we got that out of it. But he he himself was learning that for certain kids, they need a different approach, even than the strict attachment parenting kind of style. And it was 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and that's kind of that orchid child that comes out now that right. I've done a lot of work on that we have a lot more research about yeah. their needs, their sensitivities and and so yeah. on. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's a whole different can of worms when, and, and the whole idea, I mean, just to I'll get us back on track here, but the idea that all kids should be the same, ignoring that of course, kids have different needs, different sleep needs, different temperament needs, different, you know, stimulation needs, all these things vary the same way they do with us adults. And I don't see why it's so hard to get that across to families that you don't have a one size fits all baby. Well, it's not, it's not, and we'll talk about this, obviously, it's not really their fault, because a lot of all of the sleep training literature is based on behaviorism. Behaviorism does not care behaviorism does not care what a a child or even believes that a child brings anything into the world, right? It's simply a formula of behavior and reward. So everything is off the table as, you know, in terms of the theory that's driving all this advice. Um, They don't care. And, And I think that's where, of course, one place where we're really failing parents is we, when you tell them, hey, this isn't working not because you're doing it wrong, but because this isn't working for you. And let's find something that does. They are a thousand percent relieved to hear yes. that. Oh, absolutely. I know. And and when I say it was hard to get to parents, I don't mean it's hard because the parents, I mean, right. why is it so hard? It's like an uphill battle to even get that message out because it's so being drowned out by everything else there. So, okay. So this kind of leads us. So we are going to talk about your review and you've already presented at several conferences, Mm -hmm. like on this topic, but I want to start for families who are probably at the same boat you were in that you just mentioned when you had your daughter at the beginning, which is why do we even need a review? Isn't there a ton of research? We already know that it's, it's fine, right? It's, um, I hear people all the time. We know it's safe. We know there's, there's tons of research. There's, you know, I think you mentioned it to me the other day in an email that what we shouldn't even be allowed to question it because there's such a large basis of evidence. So to answer that question, why do we need a critical literature review on it? Because everyone else is asking and answering the same question that it's shocking to me that, I mean, this is the business of research, right? And and I don't know that people who aren't in the field like realize that it's a business, it's an industry. And when someone, you know, when a certain, I say a research train leaves the station, there is an, um, a, a pressure to just jump on the train. You don't wanna say, hey, maybe we should take a different train. It's like, no, we're going to build on what's already happened. And then the body of literature builds and it cites itself, right? It starts citing itself. And then someone says, well, let's do a review of all the stuff of this same train. Let's review it. And now let's meta analyze it. And now let's structure it and put a hierarchical on this one train rather than say, wait a minute, I'm not even sure this is the right train. Or have we asked the right questions? Um, and I'm always shocked to read new reviews that essentially are identical to reviews that have already happened. That doesn't mean that whatever they're looking at is any stronger or better. They're just redoing what's already been done. So um, the whole purpose of my review is to start asking different questions, which is 
how well does this work? How well does an average parent experience this? Um, who does it work for? But more importantly, who doesn't it work for? Right. Um, we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, which is that research is only interested in averages and in statistical significance, not at all interested in practical significance. So when they talk about averages and then the media or a, or a sleep book author takes that and interprets it, it can get really inflated to, oh, this works all the time for every baby um, in, any, in any context. And when you look at the research, that's just, of course, it's not the case. So, yeah. And that actually reminds me, um, it's, I, I haven't done a podcast topic on it yet, but we are overdue. But the most recent paper, Levita D'Souza and I wrote um, in, um, I can't even remember the name of the journal, go me, um, is, was presenting an alternative view for families that needed it. And I got to tell you, it felt a bit like an uphill climb, given reviewers' views and everything, that why do we need it? And it was, we were very lucky that the editor and others were highly supportive of it. But yeah. it was shocking to me that what we wrote, as, as Livia and I were talking about it, it was like, we did not think we'd written a controversial paper. In no way, shape, or form did we look at this and go, ooh, we're going to have some people chatting on this. And yet, yeah. it was massively controversial, which it yeah. really shouldn't have been because even that wasn't even looking specifically at sleep training. All it was was saying, hey, maybe we need alternatives for families who don't want to do this for a variety, like, yeah. variety of reasons. Yeah. That's well, it. Yeah. And the, and the information, I mean, that's what happens with research, right? You get people going, well, it is evidence-based. Like that's, that's all they have to say, right? Oh, well, there is research on it. In fact, alternative viewpoints get slammed because people, researchers will say, well, there's no evidence of that. It's like, yeah, because no one is looking at it. Exactly. Right? And it's not for lack of trying. I know many researchers who want to be looking at it, but getting funding for it is a mm. whole other can of worms because yeah. again, you're countering the status quo and, and so we go. So, so let's start to dig into this. Yeah. And the first question we really want to go to is, the age, because you brought that up too, that first yeah. you look at the recommendations were here, they've gotten younger and younger and younger and younger. So in your review, mm -hmm. what generally speaking is the evidence, and it may even just be what is the research mm -hmm. on sleep training, extinction sleep training in these younger ages, like we'll start with under six months, and perhaps under a year, kind of as the two separate yeah. points there. So right. What is there in terms of the number of kids involved in these studies in order for us to kind of extrapolate any of the findings? Sure. Well, do you have a cricket sound sound cue there? Um, because it is. This is going to be a little like Emperor's New Clothes. I really, It really feels like that on a daily basis for me, which is like the more I look, the less I find. So believe it or not, if we're talking about, like if we look at the sleep books, right? So that's another place to start is the top sleep, top selling sleep training books. Um, really 100% advocate for some form of extinction. So either pure extinction, which is the, you know, you put the baby in the bed, you close the door, you don't leave till morning or some form of graduated, meaning leave the room, come back, leave the room, come back. However, that works. Um, most of them, um, recommend starting, uh, as early as, well, often three to four months, a couple of them like Weissbluth, um, recommends eight weeks, um, moms on call, a very popular, um, a, a program. They recommend pure extinction starting at eight weeks, which, uh, I'm, it's I know just I incomprehensible I to me get my head around it. So here's what we know. There are seven studies that have included any infants under six months. Two of those studies were done in an inpatient context, meaning moms were in essentially not a hospital, but like an inpatient um, program with lots of support, lots of counseling, um, lots of uh, help from nurses, 
Um, and then they did some form of sleep training while the moms were in this context. That's two out of seven. Then in four out of the seven, um, the, the younger babies were only part of a sample that spanned massive age ranges. So one of them is like four to 52 months. Now I'll do the math for you. 52 months is a four and a half year old. And then they don't say how many babies were under six months or under a year. So we actually don't even know. It just says that maybe there was one four month old. The other thing is that we don't, they, they never parcel those results out by age. So we don't know how the babies in that study did. That's four out of the seven existing studies. Um, two were inpatient, one study used a, a true graduated extinction protocol on younger babies. Um, and so we have, we have literally one study. And do you remember how many babies there actually were in that, that we're now using as our basis for, for I all have, of that? Have it right here. <laughs> it was kind of big, 268. Okay. They were two to three weeks old, but here's the, here's what we're going to be talking about a lot. They're going to say significantly improved sleep. So what is significantly improved sleep? Now, I know as a parent what I would think of as significantly improved sleep, but researchers, that word significant, we know it's, it, it means a different thing. So in this study, this is Simon et al. in 2005, by six weeks, the intervention infants only were sleeping 30 minutes more. By 12 weeks, only a half hour more. Um, and... Uh, and the longest bout of nighttime sleep was only 0.1 hour longer. Yeah. That's a lot of potential work for not a lot of extra sleep. And just for people to do the math, 0.1 of an hour is 10% of an hour, which is six minutes. Yeah. Six minutes more sleep. Yeah. Totally. And then now remind me. Yeah, go ahead. Is that the same study? Because I know a lot of Simon's work where they claim the fussy behavior wasn't the same, like was was equal in the two groups. It didn't increase. I remember one of them, they also looked at fussing behaviors and said, and look, it didn't increase fussing, except the babies were now awake for a shorter period of time and fussy, the same amount of fussy. So I'm like, proportionally, actually, their fussing About increased. Yeah. But yeah, it was. I, I think, it, and the other piece is that I have to look at this, but you know, just from a developmental standpoint, um, lots of babies get better at sleep over the first several months. Um, and then the four month regression hits and just about all babies start waking up a lot more. Now, uh, did you say the babies were two to three weeks? Yeah, this started one? It, dude, I think that it's, I have to remind myself, see, this is, this is what we said about getting back into it. Yeah. A, a month or two ago, I would have known exactly it. Um, this is starting at two to three weeks. I have to look and see when, exactly. Yeah, when they actually started the ex graduated extinction, I think they might have been. It started at like baseline at two to three weeks, and then mm -hmm. they started the extinction. But it was probably like eight weeks. Yeah, um, which is another thing, though, as you yeah. said, starting baseline at two to three weeks, assessing the sleep of a two to three week old child to yeah. eight weeks to three months to six months, you are looking at massive natural. Vast. trajectories that yeah. are going to change yeah. how we look at that. So, and I know that's the point of the comparison group is we're seeing technically a, a, a sample that goes on. Now, did they do a intent to treat? See, I'm getting into all the details. Yeah, here, but I, this yeah, is one of the other things that right. gets me with it, as I'm sure you've seen, is even the analyses themselves Yeah, is when we talk about significance, if you look at intent to treat, what that means for those, I know we've talked about it on some other episodes, but if you haven't heard, it means you separate people into their two groups and then you analyze them regardless of what they did in those groups. So if you randomly assigned families to a sleep training intervention or a non-sleep training intervention, you're assuming they did exactly what it was. And we know that's not the case because many families have been assigned to sleep training interventions and said, yeah, you know what? That's not for me. Many are assigned to non-sleep training interventions. And because they don't necessarily know what the study is on, end up doing sleep training mm -hmm. on their own. Yeah. So you're not comparing at like 
these yeah. two groups, it's not apples to oranges, which is oddly what you're really looking to try and right. do here. Right. You're kind of getting apples to apples in a sense. Yeah. It's, you know, and so when we say we see differences or not, it's not necessarily the whole picture. Right. This one did have a control group. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but again, these, these, these actual differences are small. And I can tell folks listening that this goes through the sleep research. This isn't just the young babies in terms of actual practical differences between intervention and control groups. Generally, the differences are quite small or they're counterbalanced by something else. So for example, um, babies will sleep longer but will still wake up as, as, as many times. Maybe they just won't be awake as long. And for parents, it's the night wakings that's the really important point. Um, so really looking at the actual differences between the two groups is critical because parents get the message that, oh, you just, here's, I think the general idea behind crying it out is, oh, look, grit your teeth, just be strong. And if you do cold turkey, it'll be three nights and your baby will be sleeping through. And if you do the graduated, it might be a week and then your baby sleeps through the night. That might happen for some people with fairly mellow kids. It is not, certainly not what the research says. And I don't think what most parents are experiencing. From a practical perspective there, um, I know I have a, another paper that came out this year with Jenny Roger looking at um, the few studies that included objective measures of sleep with sleep training. And I can tell you guys, there is no difference. These kids still wake the yeah. same number of times. So the difference seems to be when parents say it works is generally speaking, they're probably talking about how much their child actually wakes them up. And mm -hmm. that's, as we've talked about on this podcast before, it's a question, it's a separate question unto itself, but it is not saying that sleep training actually gets your baby sleeping through the night. Mm -hmm. In fact, it really doesn't. It gets them to stop calling you mm -hmm. at night for some children, but as we've already assessed, not even all of those children have that happen. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we're looking at a, at a different question here. Right. So this actually, you touched on this already, and I, I want to just hone in on it a bit. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about these younger children, and as you said, it even goes up, especially with the evidence going up further mm -hmm. up about how the lack of uh, efficacy of stuff of sleep training. But why should people consider this younger age group? as mm -hmm. being somehow different from older kids. If it works for say a two-year-old, or mm -hmm. we look at that research and say, well, in those groups it works or 18 months old or 12 mm -hmm. months or whatever it is, why can't we just yeah. bring it down to six months or five months or four months? What yeah. are the differences there? Yeah, well, that's what a lot of the researchers say. They're like, look, if it's good for addressing existing problems, why not get ahead of it and prevent these problems from happening? Let me just say one thing about that. We know there's a standard statistic that they'll say between 25 and 30% of infants will have a sleep problem in the first year. My question is then why are we telling 100% of parents to worry about it if only 30% are going to have a sleep problem? Can I add to that? Yeah. Why are we calling it a problem if a third of the kids happen to have it, a quarter to a third yeah. of kids? I mean, if a quarter of the population is even less than that, left-handedness is mm -hmm. in a smaller portion. And I know we did for a while consider it a problem to be fixed, but we've mm -hmm. now learned, no, that's actually not a problem. It's just mm -hmm. a different mm -hmm. way. So, well, yeah, well, I think what we have to talk about too is, is, and, and I, this is where I want to get nuanced is that we, there are people with severe sleep problems with kids with really hot. I mean, parents are in trouble, right? Like I, I talk to them every day. Um, there are also parents whose babies waking up once or twice and they're cool with it. Right. So you're right. What the, what the research calls a sleep problem and all this horrible stuff they've, they are saying, you know, Oh, sleep problems. Essentially. I think Weisbluth even says cause ADHD cause all this stuff. We, that's not what the research says. That is not what the research says. Um, so we've got parents wound up in, into a state of fear that if their kid doesn't sleep, all these horrible things are going to happen. And we need to deconstruct that soon. Um, my hunch is that things that 
result in ADHD, it's a processing issue that makes sleep harder in infancy or in early childhood. Those two things, there's a, there's a lurking variable there that we're not considering. And there is more research on that that's now coming out that's finding that, you know, retrospectively, sleep is always a problem. And it really does seem to be a third variable problem, that there's right. something else that affects, well, or that ADHD affects another area that then affects sleep, but it's right. already there to right. begin with. Exactly. And to your point on families struggling, I actually do want to address it if we can get in. I think it's important to remember that exactly what you touched on, but the definition of a sleep problem in the literature versus a parent having a, a real severe sleep problem are two very different things. So when you've looked at your research, what are they defining as a sleep problem? It's all over the place, right? It's all over the place. I mean, they sometimes will use a scale, the BISQ, the Brief Infant Sleep Questionnaire. Some of those problems that they consider problematic, I don't think parents, you know, I think co-sleeping is on there as problematic. I think there's, I mean, we could have a whole discussion on that. Often it's just self-report. They'll just say parents who report that their child has a sleep problem. Um, it, it's really all over the place what a sleep, it, and it's it, across research studies, it's kind of like whatever that author wanted to decide was a sleep problem. Um, some places people are actually in a clinic for sleep problems. So like a clinical population, others are just people who said they think they have a sleep problem. Um, yeah, I, I tell my research students all the time, like I teach sort of introductory research and I'm like, you know, it's like they're just making it up. Because for a, for a field that's supposedly so intent on precision and scientific rigor, there's, there are vast areas where they're just like, whatever, you know, that works. <laughs> I know. And that's, that is, it's such a big problem because you'd think, you know, you could, someone should be able to look at this. And well, not someone, everyone should be able to look at it who's in the field. I'm not talking parents, but I'm talking other researchers and say, there's a problem here right. that we're missing. And this particular case of defining it so wishy-washy is, and especially when we define it as a parental perception of a problem, we now have to get to the issue of, does the parent perceive it as a problem? Because we've told them societally that it's a problem. And there are so many families who I've spoken to where that's the case. They get up and they're like, well, it's, it's a problem. My baby's waking two, three times a night. And I'm like, well, are you bothered by it? Well, no, but there's something wrong with my baby. And actually the bother is they're highly stressed. And sometimes that can affect their sleep yeah. because yeah. they're so worried about every waking causes this intense stress that they cannot cope with. Yeah. And all they need to know is, but you know, that's normal. Right. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm totally fine waking up. Like those two times don't bother me. I'm, I'm okay. And so that person went from having a perceived sleep problem to not having a perceived sleep problem. Oops, there we go. Um, yeah, I, I work on a telehealth platform and I talk to hundreds of parents a month. And I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to, talked to with three or, you know, two or three month old babies, uh, several of them with, like really, I would say great sleepers. And they, you know, one, one, I remember it was like a three and a half month old baby who was sleeping from seven at night till three in the morning was doing one feed and then was sleeping till six 30 or seven. And they thought that was a problem. And they not, not from any, like not from their perception, but what they thought that I would also think was a problem. And when I told them, no, actually, not only do you not have a problem, you're doing amazingly well. You could, you really can just see the stress coming, lifting off of them. Um, I think we've done parents it, a, a huge disservice with the way we talk about sleep. It is not helpful. I think it's actually incredibly counterproductive um, because what we're not paying attention to we, you know, people have gotten so folk hyper focused on sleep that they're forgetting the ramifications of all of this. And what I see is that the ramifications of the tone of sleep advice is that it makes parents think 
I don't think I know what I'm doing. I'm making the wrong choices. I'm starting bad habits. I feel guilty for holding my baby while they nap. Um, This isn't going the way the book says. And I think it's me. I think I'm doing it wrong. All of that, we just need to get rid of as soon as possible. Um, And parents' well-being, yeah. And I think that kind of leads into the next area I want to ask you about, because you do specialize in looking at the effects on family and maternal relationships and and Mm well-being. So what is happening when we see, we have problems in the research, we don't have research in younger kids, it's not assessed very well, Mm -hmm. Um, we don't have proper definitions, we get statistical significance sometimes, but mm-hmm. as I found, you don't even get statistical significance with objective measures. But even when you get it, is it practically significant given the, right. the heartache and everything you go through? Mm-hmm. So we have all this layered on top of what is this doing to the family, regardless yeah. of, of whether it works or it doesn't. And this is kind of just a clear example you just started with, which is that we make parents doubt themselves completely. Mm-hmm. But are there other effects that you've seen or have seen in the literature or even get in your experience talking to these families on a regular basis? Well, I think, like I said, I don't know specifically from, you know, I I think the effect is on self-efficacy and on um, feeling like they don't, like I said, like they don't know what they're doing because we've gotten so expert centered and so method centered um, that people are following these methods and they're spending a lot of money. And um, again, most of these things work great if you have a pretty mellow kid. So there's always a core group that they can do pretty much whatever they want and it's going to work out fine. It's going to be not that hard. It's going to be a hardly a bump in the road. Literally everyone else is holding on by their fingernails. And I think that's a problem. Um, What we also have to really remember is that almost all of the research, there's very little that's not done in the context of a significant amount of support and assessment. So um, a study will recruit parents, the parent will meet with a professional, usually some kind of a psychologist or somebody who will take a history, will do an assessment, will often tailor the plan and then that person, once they deploy the intervention, gets follow-up calls and can maybe reach the person by phone. And then the study says, oh, the intervention worked. Now, every parent sitting at home alone with a book right now is going, well, hello, if I had that level of support, I'd do well also. Um, it's, it's like they're pairing a coaching context or a support context with the intervention. Um, And then saying it's just the intervention that worked. And from my perspective, I think it's the support that works. I really do. And I think it goes beyond even support because a lot of those studies that do have significant also have other elements of just understanding what's normal infant sleep. And they'll do screeners for feeding problems or allergies or other elements that might need to be followed up by other individuals. So these people are getting a lot of different elements all at once. And Mm -hmm. as we said, a lot of people, even within the context of studies, the intervention, they may not do the intervention, Mm, but they may report that the child's sleep is better. So if suddenly you take even just the support piece, but say you get some history on normal infant sleep, you learn that, oh, my baby needs to feed because their belly's really, really tiny. And so Mm -hmm. they're going to feed regularly throughout the time. Okay. So now I know that's normal. So now a few of those wakings that might happen a couple of times a night, don't bother me anymore. I've -hmm. got this person calling and checking on me and they're Mm -hmm. making me feel good. Six months later, when you ask me, how is your child's sleep? I think it's great actually. Like, I'm not worried. I haven't noticed. I'm not bothered by it. I'm feeling good. My mental health is better. Right. And these are all things that we use to then support the unstructured, unsupported, unchecked Mm -hmm. use of Mm -hmm. extinction sleep training. Yeah. Well, and I think if, if there is a sort of a bottom line to all of this, I think both the research and the advice 
and, and truly our whole discourse on this topic needs to get broadened out to remember the intense amount of variability there is between babies, between families, between parents. We, we really have condensed everybody down to the middle of the bell curve on everything. And, um, and that's where I really see the benefit of, um, of a different kind of conversation, which is that, yes, this is going to work the way they say for some, for some kids and not for others. In fact, the statistic I like to tell parents a lot is across all the studies on crying it out, it didn't work for between 25 and 50% of the sample. That's a lot of people who in research it didn't work for. And no one, this is again, that train analogy, no one's saying, huh, who are those kids? Who are those families? Who is it that this isn't working for and why? And, and, and telling parents this fact as well. Yeah. And then to top it off, a lot of those studies, we were just looking at it on another podcast, Levita and I were examining, okay, but how many people even make it in to begin with? Because some people opt out already. So if you have 50%, upwards of like up to 50% of people for whom it's not working, right. but then you also have the few studies that have reported their kind of attrition models of how many people they recruited, how many people said no for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Well, you're sometimes taking out another 40% yeah. of the sample. So now you're looking at over half the population for whom it either doesn't work or they're not interested in it. Right. And yet again, we go back to pressure. The books, the stories, the everything comes to this is what it is, that you right. have to do this for whatever right. reason. And yeah. I do want to ask, because when we talk about, you know, we've talked about the parental well-being, we've talked about the variability in children, but when I think about well-being and I think about children in sleep, one of the things that comes to mind is Gabor Mate and mm -hmm. his discussion of viewing how he sees um, crying it out in particular, that it is, it cannot be seen as anything other than a traumatic experience for the child. Mm -hmm that it is, regardless of anything else that happens, it's a trauma. And I know that at the ACEs network, they're looking at the baby ACEs, which includes stuff like crying it out for young infants, because they can't contextualize the mm -hmm. lack of a caregiver being there, they're abandoned, they're helpless. Mm -hmm. How does that play in, do you think, longer term to these family relationships, if at all? Yeah, I so I tend to shy away from calling all of it trauma because again I I like the more nuanced idea because I I think that we have to say we can't say it's never trauma and we can't say it's always trauma. I think that what we need to start asking is for example um you know in the investigation of negative side effects, right? Like the researcher says, nope, nope, there's none, never, never, not any, nope, nothing to see here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Do not look behind the curtain. No, they're not hiding something, but they're certainly not looking very well. I say it's like they're looking for something they actually don't want to find, right, in the research. Um, none of that research uh, or any researchers are looking at or asking the question, how much crying is too much? At what ages? For what infants? So in the research on negative side effects, for example, they never note how much crying happened. So if they happen to have a sample where the kids cried, they're like nine month old babies, a year old babies, and they cried for 15 minutes, and they said, oh, yay, no negative side effects. A lot of us would go, yeah, okay, I buy that. But we don't know then what happens to a younger baby who's crying for an hour, right? Like, like I don't understand why we're not looking at that idea. You know, Alan, I cornered Alan Shore at a, at a conference years ago. And I asked him this question about like, what do, you, what do you think about kind of this unmodulated crying at very young ages? And he, of course, gave me this very long, very intensely complex answer, <laughs> full of brain physiology that I didn't totally understand. But um, he basically said like, look, as certain structures are developing in the brain, there are moments of development where a kid getting thrown off or having a certain amount of stress or disorganization could throw that organism off. 
Um, we can't possibly know what that means or when that would happen, but the brain is going through such rapid development. And I do think certain amounts of stress at certain points in that development for certain babies really is not, would not be recommended, which is why I don't, I, I do everything I possibly can to hold off on trying to work with babies under six months because there's just too much development happening. There's too many capacities that have not come online. Um, the analogy I use with parents is I say, look, it's like if we told parents of a newborn, you had better work on those walking skills right now, because if you don't, this baby will be dependent on carrying and he will never learn to walk. And it's like, we know that working on walking skills at four weeks isn't going to do a darn thing because the baby's not ready. So we could try to have them stand up. It's not going to work. <laughs> and I think it's the same with sleep, right? You a baby, a child has to have capacities. Self-soothing doesn't just appear. It is not just given to a child at birth. It grows as the child grows. And, um, and if you overwhelm an organism at a certain moment, we really don't know what those um, effects are going to be. Well, even what we do know about self-soothing or regulation is really what we're talking about is the research is quite clear on it that children need co-regulation for a very long period of time. It's not six months. It's not nine months. Kids are co-regulating into early childhood, three, four, five, six, seven years of age. And this goes to that, um, there was a recent paper by Dr. Lauren Philbrook uh -huh. and yeah, uh -huh. the, the bedtime and you're yeah. like finding it's lovely that yeah, even three to six year olds yeah. benefit from that parental presence and contact at bedtime to lower their cortisol levels right. and that improves their sleep. So there's always this co-regulation piece that seems to go across our development. And it doesn't mean there's areas where they could start a bit and go, but it, it is, it's like a little dance happening, right? Back right. and forth where there's development and setbacks right. and development and setbacks. Yeah. So it exactly. is, um, and, and I think even the crying, I would just add a nuance to that as well, having looked at some of the research on regulation as well, is that some babies will become highly distressed, but still not cry. Yeah. And that is the other thing. So parents can right. say, my kid's not crying, they're fine. And we know that's not always the case based on temperaments and everything else. So yeah, and then other kids can cry like they're dying and nothing is happening. Exactly. These differences are so important, but yet, and I guess this goes to the question. So I'd be curious, your thoughts on this mm -hmm. is how can parents even assess that? How do they even go into this being able to say, I mean, you had the very sensitive baby, you had everything, there were signs, and I've talked about orchid children a lot. So there are things that some people know, but at the end of the day, we don't know our child's individual physiology. Mm -hmm. We know their behavior in response to stuff, but mm -hmm. it's a little harder to get at, okay, what's actually happening underneath the surface? Yeah, of course. Um, I think I like the notion of scaffolding and I like the, the idea of being present while you help a child learn a different way. Because I know because I mostly work with these, I call them live wires, um, where parents are, it's hours and I mean, parents, it's, it's never enough. Like it's hard. Um, that, that we have to know what a child is developmentally capable of doing at, at an age and then help them get there, help, help them. Like I say, like we teach them to ride a bike or literally anything else. You help them a lot at first and then you give them little doses of having them work on it with you right, right nearby to, to make them safe. So even when I'm working on sleep with folks, I'm like, look, we're going to help your child learn maybe to fall asleep. You stay right there. Give them a lot of help at any point. You think they need help calming down, pick them up, calm them down, right? Because if we let a kid go past what their brain can, what they can self-regulate, they're not thinking straight. They're not learning anything. So calm them down, help them get back into a okay state 
and then try again or keep going or whatever you whatever you feel like you have to do. But this idea where you have to grit your teeth and wait 15 minutes is bananas. It really is. It's and I've done the same with the families I work with. It's, you know, you can always try something and right away and I always say never do more of a minute just for your own one minute is a ton of time for a family. Mm -hmm. And I don't do a lot. Like I'm talking about just like lying next to them before, you know, going Mm -hmm. and, and it's Mm -hmm. usually in my mind, if a baby's crying, I'll say, you may only tolerate five seconds Mm -hmm. and that's fine. You know what, you know, you know where your baby's at and what's happening. And it's okay to step back and say, you know, I I think my baby's telling me they're not ready for this. Maybe they're not developmentally ready for this step. And then you go back and say, okay, well, what's another step that can be taken that would help as well, right? That that's, yeah, it's it's a problem. And, and, you know, that goes back also, uh, and I don't know if you were going to ask about it, but the, you know, the investigation, I touched on it, but the investigation of side effects is truly awful. It's truly awful. It's it's truly awful. Now, again, I don't think, I, I'm not on one camp or the other, always, try, you know, always bad, never bad. But I think the investigation of it has, has, it's just, it's just terrible. Well, <laughs> this goes to one of my questions, actually, yeah. which would be, I mean, in terms of this, like you've now looked at this literature in mm-hmm. depth. And when we talk about it from a, a research perspective here, yeah. right, not a, a clinical support perspective, right? what would you want to see? going forward in the research? If you could see where we need, what work do we need? What research needs to really be happening to Mm -hmm. help us paint at least an even more complete, because I can't even say we're even close to a complete picture. We have like one piece of the thousand piece puzzle. Yeah. is what seems like we've we've got here. So where do we get the other 999? What are yeah. the things and and what's most urgent do you think to look at first? Oh god, that's that's the hardest part of that question. I don't know. I mean, I, there's just so much that needs to happen. So Sarah Blunden is doing some great work um on and other and a couple other people on alter and a slower, more gradual approach to sleep training. I think number one, parents need an alternative. They need an option because for many families, not doing any, you know, I came from this camp of like, I just suffered through it. And I honestly cannot recommend that to people. I really don't. So having an alternative that works, that's just as effective. Um, she found that her um, approach worked just as well, or maybe a touch better than extinction and mom's stress levels were a lot lower. Um, so, so more research, more research on sort of head to head comparisons. So parents can have a broader uh, idea. Um, we really need more nuanced age specific research. We've got to say, how do how is it even important that we start uh, under six months? I, you know, I don't think I actually said there is literally no research that says that there's any benefit to starting at four months versus starting a little bit later. There is not one shred of inquiry into the need to start early or the advantage of doing so. Um, the work that I've done shows that there's, there's no benefit at all, at all. So why are we doing it? Um, So more age specific ideas. We really need to fold in temperament Um, because my hunch is you're right. The live wire kids, the orchid kids are the ones that are and their parents and their parents are the ones suffering absolutely the most Um, because cry it out doesn't doesn't usually work for them. And then parents are just stuck with an incredibly wakeful child. So that I, maybe I'll put that at the top. I I would put that at the top is look at the role of temperament and the experience of parents uh, and sleep training. I did do some of that research uh, on temperament and sleep. And a couple of the takeaways from that were that these parents had tried a higher number of strategies with less success than, than parents with mellower kids. Um, so they, they're, they're hurting for sure. They need help. 
And that was, you know, when I did more of my, my consulting work, that was the majority of my base for those families. And that is why, you know, I've always taken a, again, the alternative approaches and I have several cause I look at physiology and everything, but if you can't consider temperament, it is. And, and I always warn those families, everything takes longer and your child will still require you there more. It's like mm-hmm. you break that yard into inches Mm-hmm. Instead of taking it yard by yard, you're going inch by inch along yeah. the way because they need that that scaffolding of yeah. step by step by step yeah. by step by step by step by step and yeah. so on as it goes. Hundred percent. Yeah, and, it's totally true. And and again, the the research will say, oh, and I hate I hate 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 the term difficult. I that's another p- part of my research was the whole purpose of it was to say, Hey, can we maybe broaden this from difficult? Cause I think there's other stuff in there besides just fussiness, but um, uh, they'll say, you know, if they assess temperament, they'll say, Oh, well, the children with a difficult temperament didn't improve. They did improve, but not as much, or it's understood that children with a difficult temperament have more trouble with sleep. And that's like all they'll say. Um, but I think without really factoring in temperament to some of these results, they're really missing the boat a lot. Absolutely. And those families are the ones, like you said, have tried more, they go more and the feelings of helplessness for them at the end is overwhelming because there is, there's nothing, they feel like there's nothing left to do and they feel like they're the failure the whole time. And then you factor in the sleep deprivation and everything else going on. And yeah. And the number of people that have probably said to them, Oh, you just need to sleep train Mm -hmm. or you must not be doing it right. That's your problem. You're just not doing it right. And again, putting it back on them as to what's going on. You know, the other piece to temperament that I found, and I I wish someone looked at it more, and it was part of our our paper when we talked about alternative directions, was Mm -hmm. how many families I met with that there were underlying conditions that they were really just being missed. And doctors were not even looking for them. Feeding problems was probably the biggest. Mm -hmm. And nope, just sleep train. We're not going to say, let's get you in with a feeding specialist, however you're feeding. Let's take a look at what's Mm -hmm. going on. Um, Intolerances and allergies cropped up with stuff. And it it was just treated like a, that this would somehow usurp all of it. Right. And it just breaks my heart because these are families who, when they get the help they need for the problem that's, you know, like I always say, no matter what, there isn't almost never truly a sleep problem in which sleep is the only thing it's there are other things affecting sleep and even with those kids with the more high wire sensitive orchid temperament a lot of it is stimulation a lot of it is how they Mm -hmm. process the world a lot of it is overreactivity a Mm -hmm. low stress threshold all Mm -hmm. these things affect sleep their sleep is not the problem And so when you focus on that, suddenly it opens up, like you said, alternatives to say, okay, well, let's look at stimulation. Let's look at the, how their stress levels get activated. Mm -hmm. Let's look at all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But similarly, when we look at other families with feeding problems, whatnot, of course, a baby who isn't feeding right is going to struggle to sleep. Oh yeah. Like, is this just. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why there's some, there's some researchers who say we really shouldn't, we really shouldn't be intervening on sleep with younger babies because there's just too much that that could get missed um silent reflux is massive for what usually that's what it is um in older children i've actually found now um and this isn't even on pediatricians radar this is on pulmonologists and sleep doctors but restless leg syndrome in small children um people who have these massive sleep problems. This isn't even like bad. This is like crazy gargantuan sleep problems that are unresponsive to anything. Um, I have found that the children have low ferritin levels in their blood. And once they start getting iron supplementation, the sleep problems literally disappear. It's funny how many families I've sent to get iron checked is uh, one of those things years ago, I was asking families to look at because I looked at that. The other is sleep apnea. Yep. is it's rarer 
but it happens. And especially mm -hmm. in the toddler years, it can start yep. to crop up and that is going to affect sleep. And that is a danger piece yep. too, that yep. that's not a group of children you would want to shut in a room and walk away from. True. Right. There's the yeah. an element there. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. You need to get to an ENT right. who specializes in this and have this mm -hmm. looked at appropriately. Yeah. I mean, pediatricians so. really gatekeep this and I can't even tell you. Um, so ferritin is a separate blood test, unfortunately. And I've had lots of people, lots of pediatricians who won't even do it, do, won't even test for it or pediatricians who won't refer to a sleep uh, an ENT won't, you know, they really kind of say, no, this is just a sleep training problem. Um, I've across my whatever, seven, eight years of, of doing this. Um, I've, I've seen lots and lots of people that I've had to say, you need to get a second opinion or you need to go push because this is not a sleep problem. It's I have, you know, similarly, I've heard, especially in the U S more mm -hmm. so than some of the other countries that I've, I've had clients in. Um, I've heard of doctors refusing mental health to mom until they've done sleep training. And it is, I mean, where the things that get blocked is just, yeah. it's kind of astonishing. So yeah. this kind of leads to, I know we're, we're almost at time here, but yeah. I do want to ask, you have presented these findings. Yes. How have they been received by other <laughs> professionals? I yeah, have, I have two very good stories. Um, the so the first time I presented it was at this infancy studies conference in two thousand and I want to say four. Um, uh, it was in Chicago. It was my first ever conference. I was terrified. I was terrified. I was standing there by my poster and I'm thinking, oh my God, somebody's going to come by some massive researcher and they're going to look and they're going to go, oh honey, like I missed something huge. I was so scared. So I, I did have lots of pretty big names who came by and here's what they would often do. They'd go, they'd lean into me and they'd go, I just co-slept with my babies. <laughs> Which is great, right? <laughs> um, which is great. And then other people, they were all about it. They really, I got fantastic feedback. In fact, the woman next to me was um, a researcher, and I'm not positive I'm saying her name right, was Mac Matilda McTilde Papusek, massive older lady from Munich. And we were talking and she's like, I don't, she has a sleep clinic in Munich. And she was like, I don't know. I don't think it's that bad. You know, we use it at our clinic and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but it's a clinic and they get lots of evaluation and support. I said, in the United States, people are just using a book. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so that one was great. So I go back to the infancy studies conference just this past summer. I'm all ready for like this great thing. And I had unfortunately very, it was a, I guess, smaller conference because COVID, but um, the people that came up kind of went like this and they were squinting and I thought, okay, they're going to like this. And they go, what's extinction? I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, they really didn't. I know I had to educate them about what extinction was um, in terms of sleep, like really off, not on the radar at all. I mean, in some ways that's not so bad. It's nice that they're unaware, but like when you described it though, did they then be like, oh yeah, now I know what you're talking about? We kind of did. A couple of people that came by were from other countries. I think one was Italy and one might've been Brazil, but in, the Italian person was like, oh, we don't do this in Italy. And in my head, I'm like, yes, you do. But but from his perspective, he was like, we don't know. We don't do this kind of stuff in, in Italy. It really was like they had never heard of it. So I had to sort of educate them about what parents were being told here in the in the states. Wow. So it was weird to have that experience. I've also presented at like the Infant Mental Health Conference, the World Infant Mental Health Conference. Um, that was in like 2006 or 2007, and there there were 400 presentations on nursing. There were three on sleep. So again, it's, this is part of the problem. It's been relegated to the medical community. So if you go to a sleep medicine conference, 
behavioral infant sleep is, is everywhere. You go to an infant mental health, um, postpartum support international, some of these other places. And it's like, it's not even on their radar as a thing. It's really interesting. You say that because I've always complained to friends and other academics that this medicalization of sleep is trying to take sleep away from the systems that surround it. And you can't just look, it's not like a cough where you take a medicine and it it suppresses the cough or it it fixes whatever, or an antibiotic for, for bug. It's sleep does not exist in a vacuum. Sleep is affected by our relationships, by our day, by our feelings, by our hunger, by our our exposure to light, by temperatures, by, I mean, so much. And the medicalization of it has tried to strip it bare to something. And I mean, I think as, as you've pointed out so wonderfully in the research here is that it's just not working. That's not how it is supposed to look. Yeah. And I think parents know it. Parents know it. When I I just, before we talked, I had an appointment with somebody with a three week old baby and to tell them that letting your baby nap on your chest near your heart, your heartbeat is helping to regulate their heartbeat. Your breathing is helping them regulate their breathing. So not only is it not a bad habit, it's actually biologically incredibly beneficial for the baby's development. Now that changes over time, but the fact that I have to even say that to tell parents of a tiny brand new baby who's not even really fully on the planet yet, that holding them while they sleep is a good thing is just so sad to me. It, it really is. It, it is, but it's so good that there are people out there saying it because as you and I have both experienced, you say that to someone the relief and the fact that they can then enjoy their babies even more is something that I think is really important from that. I do want to make one other age-related sort of caveat, mm. and because we do have to consider age, because at the same time, I also have moms on the flip side of that with practically toddlers who are still nursing the baby every hour and a half at night, and the baby's two, and they cannot, they're, they're completely sleep deprived, they're exhausted. Um, What's good at three weeks is not, doesn't necessarily still work at 17, 18, 24, 36 months. And there are also moms on the flip side who feel worried about doing any sleep training at all. Meanwhile, they are just suffering tremendously. So we have to say, look, what's not going to work at one age is really there are ways of work. You don't have to, again, just soldier through it because you're worried about what it would take to get things to change because there are gentle, compassionate, slow ways to get you there. You don't have to just wait it out and you don't have to suffer. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think it it's important to know that there are other ways of working with families that do not include, and that's, I hate the term sleep training for it because it's been co-opted by yep. the yep. extinction method. It's like, we need another term for it. Oh, yeah. Well, or we just have to reclaim it because I, I had, I had just had a mom who said, Oh, I don't want to do sleep training. I don't want to do sleep training. But if my baby wakes up in less than three hours, I, I, you know, patter or rock her back to sleep. And I'm like, that's kind of sleep. That's your, that's what we would do. Like that's normal. Um, and, and so you're right. It's gotten such a bad, it's so synonymous and we really, we need to change that. Yeah. Some people say sleep learning, eh, whatever. It, it's still, yeah. I, I still struggle with it as even learning because to me, yeah. it's just working with the child to maximize their abilities. Yeah. I say that's shifting it. patterns. I say it's yeah. just about changing patterns. Yeah. It's not habits. It's not crutches. It's just a pattern. And if you if you need it to change, you can change it and you can change it really fast. You can change it really slow, but it's all about just changing how mm-hmm. changing the status quo of, of things. So yeah, yeah we got to just keep doing that. I think the yeah. more we do it, maybe it'll get out there. And I just want to add one caveat to that too, which is if you do have an older child and you are struggling with something, 
I would say 90% of the time that I have worked with families with older kids, which is a lot who have struggles, there is something underlying going on. Mm-hmm. There is something that has been missed that may be minor, that may be new. And it's when that gets resolved, mm-hmm. suddenly the change because they're older can be quite rapid and yeah. quite extreme. So it is mm-hmm. never look just to the sleep, look at the other behaviors as well as to what's mm-hmm. going on. And you can definitely start to get a sense of what might help and what you right. should look to. Sure. There. Yeah. Sure. So as we close out here, I thank you so much for talking about this. You, I can't wait to see it uh, uh, published when yeah. it's all done. Um, <laughs> but to close out, I mean, you've given a bunch of advice already, but what would be that one piece of advice that you give to families of younger babies? We're talking yeah. under six months. What can they take into their themselves to feel mm. better when they're being pressured to sleep train? Yeah, you don't have to do it. In fact, we say if you can wait till your baby's got more development, it's going to be easier on you and easier on them because they're in a better zone. You can just do what works for as long as it works for you. You really can. There's not even a timeline on that. Do you doing what works is actually fine there. You can in the, the short, the short phrase is you cannot create bad habits in the first several, lots of months of the first year. It's just not, we, we, we don't know that that's even a thing. Yeah, exactly. And even later, as you said, without the timeline, it's generally, these are not bad habits that are like smoking is going to kill you. These are, they're only perceived as bad by others. If they're not perceived as bad by you and they're working, as you said, if it's working for you, it's working for you. Yeah. And And also, I would also say, don't on the, on the other side of that, if it's cool and you're, you're rested and everybody's rested, there is no problem. On the other hand, don't wait until your gas tank is running on fumes to make changes. I always I hate that when I'm, or and I hate it, but it's really hard as, as a coach when someone comes in and they are beyond tired. Mm-hmm. So yeah. really check in with yourself and say, is this sustainable? Is this, is this a reasonable thing to ask of my child right now? Um, or am I okay waiting? But don't wait, don't wait until you're just about to blow up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right. Thank you so much, McCall. This has been yeah. so wonderful. I can't thank you enough for talking about your work here. Yes. We look forward to seeing more of it. And okay. <laughs> now get back to writing. That's, I how I <laughs> That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that if you're one of those families who's felt pressure to sleep train, but it isn't for you, or you don't even feel that there's a problem, you can feel better about saying no. And if you are struggling, I want to add that there are other methods you can use that do not require you to leave your baby to cry or to have them sleep alone. And I would strongly recommend starting there. And especially, as we discussed here today, often there are underlying issues that should be examined, so please make sure that you look into those. Now until next time, stay safe and happy parenting.